to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. In breaking news today, the Washington Post is reporting that consumer prices jumped to 5% in May of this year. This is the biggest increase since the Great Recession. Meanwhile, increasingly activists are drawing attention to the growing racial wealth gap in the United States, as well as the feminization of poverty. According to the Center for American Progress, the median wealth for white households is $189,000, but for black households, it is $24,100. According to the Poor People's Campaign, there are 140 poor or low wealth people in the United States, and 73% of the poor in the U.S. are women and children. President Biden, in his recent trip to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to mark the 100-year anniversary of the massacre of black people by white terrorists, announced some measures he hopes will lessen the gap, but the measures have been criticized as insufficient. Our guest is Dedrick Asante Mohammed with the National Community Reinvestment Coalition for our weekly Earth Watch. As alarm bells on the environmental catastrophe continues to be debated and as governments and the corporate world are trying to grapple with the crisis, environmentalists are calling them out for putting forward false solutions. Our guest is Anne Peterman, Executive Director of the Global Justice Ecology Project. And will a socialist school teacher become the new president of Peru? What are the controversies? What is at stake? What are the implications? Our guest is Francesca Emanuel, Peruvian so- sociologist that hails from the province of Ica, Peru. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. President Biden will meet British Prime Minister Boris Johnson today ahead of the G7 meeting in Cornwall, England. The two leaders are expected to talk trade, the pandemic, and climate change, among other issues. But as Feature Story News' John Beaver reports, Brexit's effect on the Northern Ireland peace deal is expected to top the agenda. Boris Johnson has never met Joe Biden. Personally and politically, they certainly have their differences. But the UK Prime Minister and US President have much to discuss. Northern Ireland will be a key topic. There's a huge amount still to be done on post-Brexit trade deals and the US have said they won't support anything that puts the Good Friday peace agreement at risk. Mr Biden is in the UK ahead of the G7 summit being held in Cornwall. Building back better from the pandemic, strengthening economic and trade ties and tackling climate change will all be on the agenda. And that's John Beaver reporting. President Biden announced today that the U.S. will buy 500 million vaccines made by Pfizer-BioNTech for distribution to developing countries through the U.N.'s COVAX program. 
World Health Organization officials have called for the most at-risk 10% of every country's population to be immunized by September and for 30% to be protected by the end of the year. The WHO called for more rich countries to follow the U.S. lead. India has recorded the world's highest single-day COVID-19 death toll. More than 6,000 deaths were recorded today. That takes the country's total fatality rate to nearly 360,000. Sarosha Mukherjee reports from New Delhi. India's death toll hit the grim milestone after the eastern state of Bihar revised its figures higher to include people who had died at home or in private hospitals. This led to a 72% surge in the deaths. Experts say the official figures for the entire country are also an underestimate of the real impact of the pandemic on India with reports of overflowing hospitals and crematoriums. That's Sarosha Mukherjee reporting. Consumer prices surged in May with a 0.6% increase over April and 5% over the past year. It's the biggest 12-month inflation spike since 2008 and comes as the country starts to emerge from the coronavirus pandemic. The Labor Department reported the rise in inflation today and said it reflected a range of goods and services now in growing demand as people increasingly shop, travel, dine out, and attend entertainment events. The increased consumer appetite is bumping up against a shortage of components from lumber and steel to chemicals and semiconductors that supply such key products as cars and computer equipment, all of which has forced up prices. The inflation pressures pose a risk to the economy's recovery from the pandemic recession. One risk is that the Federal Reserve will eventually respond to intensifying inflation by raising interest rates too aggressively and derail the economic recovery. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is drawing the ire of voting rights advocates over his refusal to back sweeping federal voting rights legislation. The Poor People's Campaign will march in West Virginia to protest Manchin's opposition to the For the People Act and his refusal to vote to end filibuster rules that risk jeopardizing Senate Democrats' legislative agenda. More from Nadia Ramlagan. Former candidate for governor of Georgia Stacey Abrams heads a month-long drive to mobilize young voters of color around the For the People Act, the sweeping voting rights bill championed by Democratic lawmakers. The campaign, called Hot Call Summer, plans to text at least 10 million voters in 2022 battleground states. Abrams' effort comes amid a wave of state-level legislation to make it harder to vote. And that means that we have to protect voters in their right to access, the right to register, the right to stay on the rolls, their right to cast a ballot, and their right to have those ballots counted. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin announced in an op-ed over the weekend that he'll vote against the bill, a significant roadblock to its passage. West Virginia community organizer Jennifer Wells says black residents helped re-elect Manchin and are angry and disappointed. He would not be in office if black people did not go to the polls in his re-election campaign. We showed up. We weren't always happy with him or his decisions he makes at the federal level, but we showed up because we understood the threat. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. A new grant program is launching in Arizona to provide more of the state's children with access to health care services. More from Public News Service's Mark Richardson. The Valle del Sol Community Health Group is planning a fleet of mobile medical teams to visit underserved communities across central Arizona to provide care to adolescent and teenage children. Wyatt Decker, CEO of United Health Group's Optum Health, says the project is designed to meet both the physical and emotional needs of kids. 
we will have primary care providers, behavioral health workers, and mental health counselors that are in a mobile unit that is set up for kids to come in in a school and get evaluated. With the grant, Valle del Sol will assemble medical teams to deliver primary, psychiatric, and behavioral health services in school and foster care settings or via telehealth. Mark Richardson reporting. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Across the United States, there are over 140 million poor and low-wealth people who are struggling to survive. This, according to the Poor People's Campaign, among those 140 million are black people and other communities of color that are disproportionately impacted by the wealth divide. But the vast majority, if you would believe this, are white people. In relative terms, Native Americans and Alaska Natives have the highest poverty rate of any racial group at 26.2%. Black people have the second highest poverty rate at 22%, and Latinos have the third highest poverty rate at 19.4%. The racial wealth divide is also gendered with women and our children bearing the brunt of poverty. Indeed, 73% of the poor are women and our children. Households led by Native American women at the highest poverty rates at 42.6%, followed by those headed by immigrant women at 41%, uh, headed by Latina women 40.8%, and black women at 38.8%. Meanwhile, cuts in federal housing assistance and affordable subsidized housing since the 1970s have contributed to rising structural homelessness. This and the gutting of the safety net, in particular Clinton's welfare reform bill. A government survey of people who were homeless in 2017 found that 41% of them were black, 22% were Latino. Furthermore, even under the Affordable Care Act introduced by former President Barack Obama, about 31 million people in the United States remain uninsured, including 4.6 million black people and 10.2 million Latinos. Also, among those who graduate from college with skyrocketing student debt, a majority are women and people from black and Latino communities. Among for-profit college students, 64% are women and 52% are people of color. This according to the Institute for Policy Studies. And to top it off, many communities of color are in other forms of crippling debt that they'll never be able to pay off and have no wealth to their name, including the value of the family car. 19% of all US households, about 60 million people, 30% of black households and 27% of Latino households have zero wealth or their debts exceeded the value of their assets. As the racial wealth divide in the United States continues to widen, economic and political policies continue to favor white people over people of color, including in the tax system. And uh, also, uh, some of the news that have been in the headlines the last few days is that some of the richest people in the United States are not paying 
any taxes or very little taxes. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and others who have supported rising tax rates for the wealthy both have zero income tax bills. This according to CNN. Bezos, the richest person on the planet, only pays about 20% in taxes for his reported income. Let us go to a clip now from CBS Miami on wealthiest Americans paying little or no income taxes. The majority of us see the line item right in our own paychecks, but the wealthiest <laughs> Americans are legally paying little to no income tax. Yeah, a lot of people don't like this. That's according to a report in ProPublica, which obtained IRS data on the ultra-rich like Amazon founder and former South Florida resident Jeff Bezos. CBS 4's Lise Preston shows us how the other half dodges the tax man. When most of us get paid, so does Uncle Sam. You're really taxed a lot. You tax more than you should be, probably. But nonprofit investigative journalism organization ProPublica obtained never before seen IRS information and found the 25 richest Americans sometimes paid little or no federal income taxes. That includes Warren Buffett, Elon Musk, Michael Bloomberg, and Jeff Bezos, now the richest person in America. He paid no federal income tax in 2007 and 2011. Their way their wealth builds, they are outside of the systems. The ultra-rich can trim their tax bills through charitable donations or by avoiding wage income. They choose when to take income. Sometimes they don't take income at all. They don't take wages. And uh, it's only taxed when they sell, and they often don't sell. They borrow to fund their lifestyles. None of this is illegal, which begs the question. Does Congress need to change the law? I do believe they should, yeah. And I believe they should overhaul the whole tax system. It is ridiculous that the wealthy are not paying taxes, and we're paying all of the taxes. President Biden has proposed higher taxes on the rich, including raising the capital gains tax. Both Warren Buffett and Michael Bloomberg responded to ProPublica, saying they support an increase in taxes on the wealthy and donate much of their wealth. Elise Preston, CBS News, New York. The IRS is investigating the source of those leaked tax documents. Right. Well, they're focusing on the source of the documents, and we all, others of us, are concerned about how little some of the wealthiest pay in taxes. I'd like to welcome our guest, Dedrick Asante Mohammed, who joined the National Community Reinvestment Coalition in January of 2019 as the Chief of Race, Wealth, and Community. Currently, he serves as Chief of Membership, Policy, and Equity. During his tenure as Chief of Race, Wealth, and Community, he oversaw Fair Housing, Fair Lending, and Women's Business Center of D.C., the National Training Academy, the Housing Counseling Network, and started the Racial Economic Equity Department. As Chief of Membership, Policy, and Equity, Dedrick oversees um, the membership organizing research policy. He comes from Prosperity Now, where he was senior fellow and founder of the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative. Before Prosperity Now, Dedrick worked for the NAACP, where he was the senior director of the economic department and executive director of the Financial Freedom Center. Dedrick Asante Mohammed has also worked for the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network 
and the Institute for Policy Studies. He serves as chair of the board of Beyond Savvy, an organization focused on financial empowerment for the justice and justice for the impacted. He sits on a variety of advisory boards, including Advancing Black Strategies Initiative, National League of Cities Racial Wealth Divide Initiative, Financial Health Networks Pulse, Landis and Better Markets. Really busy guy there, Dedrick. Asante Mohammed, welcome. Thank you, thank you, and it's Dedrick. Okay, thank you for that. Diedrich Asante Mohammed. Right. Okay. And so, Diedrich, tell us I mean, we saw the numbers in, in the intro that I gave. I talked about the stark difference in the wealth uh, gap between black households and white households. White households, $189,000, and black households, $24,000, $100. Um, give us some of the key reasons you think this exists, Dietrich. Yeah, and I just want to thank you for that uh, thorough breakdown in the beginning. It was a great breakdown of racial economic inequality uh, in the country. Um, and, you know, so, so to respond to the question of, you know, how did we get here or why are we here, uh, I like to reframe this and usually point to, I mean, I, I you know, I think what's important to note is that the country was founded on deep racial wealth inequality, racial economic inequality, right? The, the mass enslavement of African people, black people, was an act of concentrating wealth, of taking a people and, make, and making them the privatized wealth of whites. And that then laid the, found work, the groundwork for ongoing wealth development, just as the taking of indigenous land and the massacres against indigenous people was part of a wealth concentration, you know, for whites at the expense of people of color. So we have that history. And I think what we've been seeing over the last 40 years, which has been, or maybe even 60 years, which has been very disappointing, is that the country has done very little to address uh, the depths of racial economic inequality, particularly racial wealth inequality. So I think many people think of race relations, they think, well, well, you know, if they recognize there's inequality, they might think, well, we're not where we want to be, but we're getting there. But in terms of racial wealth inequality, no, we're not getting there. We're not bridging it. It's actually growing in terms of total dollars, and we need radical changes in policies and approaches if we're going to finally get the country off the path of ongoing racial economic apartheid. Right. And what about these measures that uh, President Biden outlined? He outlined them, announced them when he was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for the 100th anniversary of that massacre of black people that happened there uh, by white, I call, say, terrorists. Um, they say white rioters. Um, you know, it's been criticized for as uh, not enough. Uh, your comments on tell us what he has proposed and why do you think much more is needed? Yeah, he had two primary proposals in his uh, speech of talking about the Tulsa massacre. Uh, one was uh, his call to address the uh, uh, unequal evaluation of black homes as compared to white homes, and uh, his analysis that that is, you know, a great hindrance in racial wealth inequality and unequal evaluation of the value of a black home as compared to a similar home in a white neighborhood. I'd like to get a little bit into that. I think 
uh, in a minute. You know, I think the primary challenge actually we really need to deal with is how to strengthen black home ownership rate uh, more so than try to paint a uh, a critical picture of uh, of home of, of home evaluators. But uh, I think the, the area where he was more substantive was he was looking at entrepreneurship and procurement contracts, federal government procurement contracts, and did propose to increase a federal procurement around $20 billion a year for a program called the Socially Disadvantaged Program. That is a substantive increase. It's usually around $56 billion uh, spent in federal procurement dollars for socially disadvantaged businesses, which are almost exclusively people of color businesses. So I think that $20 billion is positive. Uh, you know, I think the question and the critique that many people have is, this is not a agenda that holistically deals with racial wealth inequality or racial economic inequality. If it was a speech on how to strengthen uh, entrepreneurship or how to strengthen uh, federal procurement uh, uh, for uh, minority entrepreneurs, that would be one thing. And I think he could say he made a substantive proposal. So putting these two proposals as as if they're going to have a substantive impact on racial wealth inequality, racial economic inequality as a whole, uh, I think has, you know, put him in a place uh, open, open for criticism. Right. And I mean, you're absolutely right on that. I mean, when you look at the fact that uh, looking at who the poor are in the United States, the rise in, in homelessness, increasingly uh, women and children, the rise of um, in mass incarceration and with single mothers being the fastest growing numbers of people uh, going to prison. And, and a lot of that has to do with crimes of poverty. Of course, the opioid epidemic has also uh, led to that. But you see this you know, with what's going on, on on Capitol Hill, it's like all of we are one, we're all on the same page. Well, no, we're not. Just if you look at those uh, those numbers. So black home ownership is uh, vital and important and needs to be promoted. And um, Biden seems to be, he says he's setting aside $10 billion of infrastructure funds to also rebuild disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods. But we also see the, the gutting of, of social uh, safety nets and then the tax system. Tell us a bit about the impact of the tax system on the racial wealth divide, Dietrich. Well, yes, and let me also just note, you know, this, this, the promise of $10 billion for investment uh, in disadvantaged communities. You know, okay, you know, that sounds, uh, you know, powerful and strong, but my question is what is the analysis, what is the analysis of what type of impact this is going to have? Because I think, you know, this is uh, very problematic if people will throw out big numbers and say they're going to make this investment in the name of racial equity or in name of increasing black homeownership, but there's no uh, breakout of, well, what effect do we think this is going to have? Is this, do, we, do we expect that over four or five years this will move black homeownership rates from 43% to 48%? What's the, you know, what's the goal? Because I think uh, without that, what we just have is program after program being put forward, some being enacted, but actually very little movement in the uh, undergirding problem that they're saying they're putting these programs forward to address. So I think, you know, that's a huge problem around uh, many of the proposals being put forward is we're not clear what type of impact it's supposed to have. 
as toward the tax system, I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. I think one of the great challenges uh, for African Americans in particular in addressing racial economic inequality is as we, you know, deconstructed outright, uh, you know, legal racial discrimination uh, in the 50s and 60s, we moved toward a, ver a more regressive economy uh, that really solidified, uh, say, early 1980. So with that is that even when the economy is doing well, quote-unquote, and it's booming, most of those uh, benefits are going to the wealthiest 1%, the highest income 1%. So even if you have less outright racial discrimination and prejudice, uh, the economy is still moving in a way that is maintaining, uh, you know, blacks, Latinos, uh, many others in uh, economically insecure of positions. And again, you know, with the tax system, you know, I, I note all the time, we spend almost $800 billion a year in wealth and asset development through various uh, different type of tax subsidies. The challenge with that is that $800 billion mostly goes to those who already have wealth and who are the wealthiest Americans. So we each year are reinvesting in wealth concentration in this country and reinvesting in asset poverty for the majority of African-Americans and majority of Latinos and many people throughout the country. So the tax system is an essential uh, area we have to work on to address racial economic inequality. Right. And I mean, there's home ownership uh, or lack thereof. The, the tax system, I mean, all the redlining and discrimination, et cetera, that happens. And it seems at every level, even getting um, home insurance or whatever it is you're doing it, it, in the United States, it seems impacted by the racism, the institutional and other racism in the country. Um, but in addition to home ownership, you also see that black families in the South who have lost so much uh, land, um, according their 12 million acres of farmland, uh, mostly from the 1950s onwards. And, and we see that there's been a push and some uh, progress on the part of uh, President Biden in terms of some funding uh, for black farmers, of which roundly criticize. Uh, but before we have to wrap up, uh, Diedrich, I'm wondering, you know, there are a lot of people who will say, well, you know, it just tells you these black people, they're just not picking themselves up by the bootstraps or other people of color, um, because that explains um, why the median wealth for white households and black households, such a great difference. Now, you and I know that that is far from the truth. But what are some of the measures, Diedrich, that you think need to happen to uh, go... Uh, not, perhaps not resolve the issue entirely, but certainly start to chip away at it, Dietrich. Yeah, so I think, you know, on a on the level that President Biden has the most control on is I think, you know, he could have a, he started a broad announcement of having stronger racial uh, equity analysis, racial economic equity analysis on government policies and programs. And in a report I did with the IPS, a year or so ago, 10 policy solutions to bridge the racial wealth divide, you know, we put forward that there should be a racial economic equity audit on all major, uh, uh, all major uh, federal legislation that has significant amounts of spending so we can have a clear understanding at the beginning. Will this investment help to bridge racial wealth inequality? Will it maintain it? Will it, uh, will it make it worse? So we, we need this type of analysis, and I think this is something President Biden 
could uh, have much, do much more on is making sure that his policies, his departments, whether it's procurement or whether it's job training programs, have an analysis of, oh, African-Americans have twice the unemployment rate of whites. So if we really want to have an equitable uh, employment training program, we need to have a target of, 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 uh, of, of this amount of African-Americans in the system. And we're looking to, you know, bridge this unemployment gap, you know, in four or five years by a certain amount. I think, you know, we need this type of technical analysis, which, uh, which he has the power to do as president and as overseeing all of these federal agencies. And then I think, you know, there's much broader, bigger policies that are needed to really, as we mentioned on earlier, we need to uh, transform our economy from a regressive economy to a progressive economy and really, re- really create a new 21st century American middle class economy. Because right now we are on the path of having an economy, you know, pretty much of a great economic divide that is reinforced by a great racial divide. Yeah, and just there's the policy end, and then there's the movement end. Uh, just recently, the Reverend William Barber, who is a joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival, he's called for a restructuring of U.S. policies to root out uh, poverty um, and racism, starting beginning from the bottom up, and he's calling for a third uh, reconstruction. So, you know, and, and there's apparently been a resolution introduced into Congress, which is non-binding. It is a resolution, but really calling for that. But it seems as though he is saying that there needs to be a, a complete overhaul. And he also speaks uh, quite a bit that although disproportionately uh, people of color are impacted uh, by poverty, that if just on the basis of numbers you look at it, it is not only an issue for black and brown people, but that there are a lot of poor white folks as well. So um, I'm wondering um, your final thoughts on, on all of this, Diedrich. Yeah, no, I do think, you know, movements have been playing an important part in elevating the conversations and, and highlighting uh, the need to address uh, regressive economics, the concentration of wealth, uh, everything from poor people's campaigns, uh, Black Lives Matter, to the whole uh, kind of movement against the 1% Occupy. So, you know, I think the country is more focused on this, but we really haven't had a clear ongoing national movement that can push forth the legislation necessary or even even the frameworks necessary to really address a what would, would be a radical shift in the American like in the American economy. I think just as we had a radical shift in 1980 to a much more conservative trickle down economic from a more uh, progressive bottom up economy that was marred by great sexism and racism, we now need again this progressive economy that's a bottom up economy that for the first time is much more gender inclusive and uh, race and ethnic conclusion. Right. And uh, Diedrich Asante Mohammed, if people want to uh, get in touch with you or, or follow your work, what should they do? Yes, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Diedrich M. I have a Facebook page, uh, Bridging the Racial Wealth Divide, uh, WordPress, uh, Bridging the Racial Wealth Divide at WordPress. And you can check out the National Community Reinvestment Coalition website, ncrc.org.
Okay, well, Diedrich Mohammed, thank you so very much. We'll have you back because um, it's, you know, for a lot of people, just wrapping our heads around these economic issues can be quite a challenge. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. All righty. Uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take our station break now and waiting in the wings to speak with us. Anne Peterman with the Global Justice Ecology Project. A lot going on on the environmental front and then a lot of fault solutions being put forward by governments and corporate America. Also coming up, the Peru election. What's going on? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed No more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead The world has changed so very much from what it used to be There is so much hatred, war and poverty Oh, oh yeah, yeah Wake up all the teachers, time to teach us Wake Up Everybody by John Legend and Melanie Fiona. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org. There we have a community calendar, lots of stories, other stories and videos. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. And we are also um, nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud uh, listeners in Detroit, Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, and internationally. Let's give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners north of the border in Canada. We are now going to turn our attention to the ongoing environmental catastrophe, disaster. Um, if you, you know, un unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, one has to realize that we are in serious trouble in, in California. Just yet another drought, um, serious drought happening, right? And fire season uh, is about to start. Arizona is already uh, in flames. Uh, the glaciers are melting. The, uh, the sea levels, the levels of the ocean uh, on the rise. Um, the uh, creatures that live in the ocean in trouble, those of us who live on land in trouble, and also the interrelationship between the air that we breathe. As it turns out, um, th those who are more impoverished are at greater risk of um, being ill uh, from pollution. And given all of that bad news, one big success uh, that was announced is that the uh, Keystone XL pipeline, which we have covered so much here on Sojourner Truth, and also many of you remember the encampment uh, that happened on the territory of the Lakota uh, nation, um, you know, opposing uh, this pipeline and others. So that has now been shut down. The owners have now walked away from the Keystone XL pipeline. And meanwhile, what's happening is that uh, pipeline protesters, this work continues. Uh, they are now, protesters have seized a Minnesota construction site to stop a $4 billion uh, pipeline project. Nearly 250 people were arrested. That is also 
also, this is an ongoing action where protesters are attempting to stop the final leg of the reconstruction of an oil pipeline across northwestern Minnesota. They took over a pump station and they have maintained a blockade at that uh, pump. So uh, a lot happening there. The, the struggle continues. But, you know, some people may have seen articles about, uh, you know, oil companies and the corporate world announcing that, well, they're concerned about the environment and they're proposing all kinds of things uh, to do uh, to move towards a so-named green economy. But a lot of environmentalists are saying not so fast. A lot of these are just false solutions. They're solutions to just maintain uh, capitalism. A lot of them are saying that uh, maintaining capitalism and saving the environment saving our planet are not compatible. So let's find out what's behind the objections. I'd like to welcome to Sojourner Truth for our weekly Earth Watch, the executive director of the Global Justice Ecology Project, Anne Peterman. And thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Margaret, for having me on again. Yeah, and, and Anne has been working on issues related to protecting forests and defending the rights of indigenous peoples for decades now, and uh, co-founded the first global campaign against genetically engineered trees in 2020. In the years since, she has presented the social and ecological dangers of genetically engineered trees at conferences with community groups and at the UN and other international fora on five continents. Uh, she currently coordinates the campaign to stop GE Trees, which she co-founded way back in 2014. So, Anne, um, tell us, you know, about these uh, false solutions, and there's a, a particular initiative, well, several I know that you're connected with, um, uh, calling out these false solutions, Anne Peterman. Sure, yeah. Well, we just um, finished producing a, a booklet, which is online and at the printer at the moment, called Hoodwinked in the Hothouse, which goes through each of the false solution schemes that are most prominent um, in, in, you know, with corporations right now and breaks them down in very simple ways that are very accessible to anybody that wants to know more. Um, and it goes through them in, uh, it's simple, yet it's also, you know, gives you really the, the, the meat or the tofu of the issue. Um, you know, so you can understand better what is exactly is being talked about. And that's online at climatefalsesolutions.org. You can download the online version. You can sign up to get a print version. And um, I highly recommend people do that if they want to understand more what we mean when we say false solutions to climate change. Right. And give us some examples, uh, Anne Peterman, of what you consider to be false solutions. I was I listened to the um, the weekly Earth Minute, which we partner with Global Justice Ecology Project for our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch about um, genetically engineered salmon. I was thinking, oh, my goodness, on the one hand, you have the salmon so under threat uh, because of dams and pollution and others. And now. Uh, one solution, it seems, <laughs> being put forward is to have genetically engineered salmon. But uh, give us some examples that you cover in Hoodwinked in the Hothouse. And sure, yeah. Well, you know, looking at the, some of the biggest proposals coming out of industry, and especially as we head towards the new UN Climate Summit that's happening in Edinburgh in November, um, which is putting 
which is trying to advance the proposals under the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, people may remember that from a few years ago that you know Biden has recommitted to. Trump pulled out of it. Biden has recommitted to it. But a lot of what's being talked about in the Paris Climate Agreement that will be talked about coming up this November are many of these same false solutions. So, you know, for example, the carbon markets, you know, putting um, putting carbon emissions into these markets to supposedly be bought and sold, so people can, so companies, excuse me, can supposedly offset their pollution, which means they don't have to reduce their pollution; they can just buy some way to offset it somewhere else. Um, all of this is sort of uh, is under two kind of um, umbrellas. One is called nature-based solutions, uh, which is a lot of people calling, are calling nature-based delusions, and also net zero. So whenever you hear the word net zero in reference to climate solutions, you know immediately that it's a false solution. Um, and what net zero is talking about is is this idea of offsets that companies can continue polluting as long as they are supposedly offsetting that pollution with some other way that's supposedly storing that carbon emission. Um, so it is a net zero calculation. And there's a huge number of problems with that depending on what the offset is. The one that our organization has focused on the most is forest carbon offsets. And with forest carbon offsets, uh, you know, the companies are saying we can continue polluting X number of thousand tons of carbon per year as long as we are protecting a forest that stores X number of thousands of tons of carbon per year. And um, there's actually no science, no credible science behind this idea of forest carbon offsets. The, the fossil fuel pollution that's being put into the atmosphere is from carbon that has been stored underground outside of the biosphere, you know, for millions of years. Now it's being pulled up and put into the biosphere, into this carbon system, this living carbon system that has been in balance for millions of years. It's being thrown out of balance because of all of these extra emissions that are being pumped into it, and they can't be absorbed. And on the planet, the forest the grasslands, the fields and farms, they can't absorb all that carbon. It's not possible. It's not, uh, you know, it's not scientific. So the whole thing is, is, is a scam to allow polluters to continue polluting. Right. And, and Anne Peterman, you know, one of the things you find people increasingly being conscious of the environment and, and individually trying to do things uh, to lessen uh, pollution and lessen the destruction, including um, getting rid of um, vehicles, cars uh, that are uh, by gas. Uh, you also find states increasingly moving away from uh, people using gas for stoves and water heaters, et cetera, and promoting electricity. Now, the thing about that is, is that for people who are, quote unquote, going green in the global north, there is a price that people in the global south and people out on indigenous lands in the global north are paying for this, uh, given um, the mining and, and other materials, rare earth materials, et cetera, needed for some of this, quote unquote, green um, uh, 
you know, green ways that those of us in the nor global north can live. Just tell us a bit about that. And, and also, and about some people are saying, well, we need trees, right? Trees are a good thing. They help us to breathe. So what's wrong with these genetically engineered trees, the GE trees? and Peterman? Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, talking about the, the greening of business as usual or existence as usual in the global north, um, you know, that's a major part of these false solutions that are being put forward, that we can continue this unsustainable lifestyle in the global north and these rich countries in the global north and especially among the elites as long as we just, you know, replace fossil fuel burning cars with electric cars or we, you know, use um, LED light bulbs or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, there's a, there are people who are paying a serious price for that, and, and some of the work that we've done in Global Justice Ecology Project for the last 17 years has been in solidarity with people in Chile, particularly the Mapuche people and other people. And those, the indigenous peoples of Chile, um, just as a specific example, are paying the price for a um, green solutions that were that are being promoted here in the U.S. to supposedly have a, a low carbon footprint, uh, electric cars, as I mentioned earlier, or the electrification of all of these things without fossil fuels through solar panels and so on, um, require a lot of lithium. Lithium, as you mentioned, a rare earth mineral. Uh, uh, quite a lot of the world's lithium comes from the Atacama Desert in Chile. And the Atacama Desert is the home of the Atacama people. And the mining of the lithium takes a lot of their water away from them. So they live in one of the driest places on the planet. And the lithium mining is not only destroying the environment there, but taking away the little bit of water that is there. So that is a very concrete impact from solar panels and the electrification of cars using lithium batteries. Uh, wind turbines, similarly, there are indigenous communities in Chile that are being impacted by copper mining. Each wind turbine takes tons of copper. That copper has to come from somewhere, and it's coming from someone's land. And the land, you know, for the copper mining is being heavily destroyed, heavily damaged and destroyed. So, again, the, these solutions sound great. Oh, yeah, we can, you know, have no carbon emissions with this technology or that technology. But if you look at the whole life cycle of the technology from the beginning, the mining of the lithium or the copper or whatever, to the actual construction, to the destruction of the forest for, you know, these big solar farms or wind farms, um, and then the social justice impacts on the people who live in these places, you know, there is, it's not that simple. And for Global Justice Ecology Project, one of the real solutions that we put forward on a regular basis is demand reduction. You know, we have to figure out how to live in the rich countries in the north, um, how to figure out how to live with about 80% reduction in the amount of energy we're using. And until we figure that out, nothing is going to be sustainable. You can't create that much energy with a sustainable system. You just can't. So, you know, start with re demand reduction. Once we've reduced it by 80 or 90 percent, let's look at, okay, the remaining 20, 10 or 20 percent, how can we create that sustainably? Um, so that's what we talk about with our right. work. 
Well, Ann Peterman, I'm af afraid we are out of time, but you're going to have to join us again and do one of your in-depth um, discussions with you. But for people who want to be in touch with the Global Justice Ecology Project and support what you're doing, what should they do? If you want to learn more about these issues and specifically about the work of Global Justice Ecology Project, you can go to our website at globaljusticeecology.org. All righty. Ann Peterman, thank you so very much for your work. Thanks thank you. Right, and thank you for partnering with uh, Sojourner Truth for so many years now for our Weekly Earth Minute and Weekly Earth Watch. This is Margaret Prescott, and we are going to now wrap our show up with looking at what's happening uh, south of the border. We saw in Chile an election that happened uh, not that long ago um, that uh, literally uh, moved um, that, that country uh, more to the left. Um, and now there's an election um, in Peru that's being contested. We're going to find out what is going on there, but it looks as though a school teacher, um, a socialist school teacher, may very well become the next president of Peru. I'd like to welcome our guest, uh, Francesca um, Emanuel, Peruvian sociologist, born and raised in the province of Ica four hours from Lima, currently a research assistant at the University, American University in Washington, D.C., where she's pursuing doctoral studies in anthropology for the past 15 years. Her articles have been published in numerous Peruvian uh, newspapers. She's currently a regular columnist for the progressive Peruvian uh, publication, Oweka. And prior to academia, Francesca was the correspondent for Telesur in Washington, D.C., and a communications director for the Peru-based nonprofit Promsex, which advocates for LGBTI rights, here it would be LGBTQ rights, and women's reproductive rights. Her most recent piece in English on the coup in Bolivia was published by the magazine Red Pepper. So, uh, friend, Cheska, we're happy to have you with all of your expertise and experience. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what's happening with this election? I mean, millions of people on the edge of their seats waiting for the outcome of this presidential uh, election. And it's now uh, down to two, but Pedro Castillo, an indigenous socialist school teacher and union activist, right now he's ahead. Tell us what's going on, Francesca. So, yeah, so this is a historic election for Peru because Peru will have, for the first time in its history since it became a republic 200 years ago, a president who comes from the working class, as you said, who is a school teacher, a farmer, a campesino. He's also a leftist, a socialist, with some conservative idea that in the past few weeks he mentioned is willing to evolve. Um, talking specifically about ideas of supporting abortion or uh, gay marriage. But, for example, he met with several LGBTQI and feminist groups and said that he will fight for diversity. Uh, Castillo's president would also shake the geopolitical scenario. Peru has been one of the historic allies of the U.S. For the past 30 years, Peru has been extremely close to the U.S. They signed a free trade ag agreement, even in foreign policy. Uh, uh, Peru has helped the U.S. In, uh, regarding uh, its attempt to oust uh, Nicolás Maduro in, in Venezuela. Peru has served as a tool uh, leading something called El Grupo de Lima. 
Uh, Pero but Castillo has clearly stated that he believes that Venezuelans should resolve their internal affairs without external intervention. So, as you said, everything indicates that Castillo will be the winner of these presidential elections in Peru. He has an advantage of more than 70,000 votes against his opponent, Keiko Fujimori, who is the daughter of the former Peruvian dictator Alberto Fujimori. And she was the first lady during Alberto Fujimori's presidency. And, and while she was the first lady, uh, her father committed horrible human rights violations and and he armed paramilitary groups that killed thousands of innocent people, and and he also sent to sterilize 200,000 women, mostly indigenous, against this consent. And not even that. Now uh, Keiko Fujimori, the opponent of uh, Castillo, uh, has been investigated for the past uh, 15 months for money laundering and also corruption and financing illegally her. Uh, her campaign. And I'm saying all of this because, as you said, uh, the results haven't been announced. So uh, Keiko Fujimori doesn't want to lose this election because if she does it, she will go directly to prison. The public prosecutor has requested 30 years in prison for her, and, and she has announced a new attack on these elections, uh, and, and she has said that there are some fraud, uh, I'm sorry, that there there is fraud in these elections, and she is trying to invalidate uh, 880 tally sheets uh, with more than 200,000 votes supporting Castillo. She has uh, a group of 48 uh, lawyers that belong to the most uh, like powerful firms in the country, and they are going to try to to uh, invalidate this, the, the results of these elections. But as I said, I mean, the electoral organizations in Peru, the, le- the electoral institutions, have said already that these elections have been transparent. The, uh, the OAS, the Organization of American States, and the European Union, who went there to Peru to observe these elections, have said that these elections have been transparent. So uh, even though... Keiko Fujimori, the opponent, wants to contest these elections. Uh, she is doing it in baselessly. So there, are, there is no evidence for her allegations of fraud. Right. And tell us, in the time we have left, tell us a bit about the Free Peru Party, which is the party of Pedro Castillo, and a little bit about him. Uh, because he has said uh, he has the slogan, no more poor in a rich country. And we, we know the U.S., they don't respond kindly to uh, governments that they feel they can't really control. And also, in terms of uh, minerals that are needed, um, we know that uh, lithium, for example, is found not only in Bolivia, I think it is lithium, but also in Peru. So uh, on the environmental front, uh, there's going to be, you know, a lot of pressure uh, put there on whoever is going to be the next president. So tell us about him and his party. Yeah, his party, uh, as you said, is called Peru Libre. It's not a national party in the sense that it was a regional party, a local party, a small party that became nationally national suddenly. 
Uh, so, uh, as I said, they are a leftist party and they support land reform or agricultural reform, a new constitution to replace the one written while the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori. And he, he talk, uh, Pedro Castillo has talked about re renegotiating contracts with transnationals even renegotiating the free trade agreement with the U.S., which is something that, of course, the economic powers doesn't like. Uh, he has talked about nationalizing strategic resources like natural gas. He hasn't said that he's against mining, but he has said, he has said that he supports mining under fair conditions and without uh, damaging the environment. He actually has lived all his life in, a, in an area called Cajamarca in the interior of Peru, in the, in the north of Peru, that has the most uh, number of mining projects in the country. So he has witnessed how indigenous communities and campesinos have fought against mining projects that have damaged the environment. So uh, this, is, this is the important part uh, that uh, people should know abroad. Uh, Pedro Castillo is a rural school, school teacher that lived all his life there. We have had other presidents that came from working class backgrounds, but they left and they went to, to Europe or, or to the U.S. When, when they became like teenagers and they came back and then they came back. But uh, Pedro Castillo has been always there. And yeah. he's part of the working class, the Peruvian working class. He represents uh, most Peruvians. Right. Well, I'm afraid we are going to have to end it there, but we're, we'll wait to see how this happens. And um, Kyoko uh, Fujimori challenging um, the election itself. So we'll see how all of this plays out. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. And, and we'll also see, I mean, there was a shift that happened in Chile in the elections. There a shift seemingly happening now in Peru. Meanwhile, in Colombia, a lot of people being killed Etc. with massive protests uh, happening on the streets. So a lot going on there south of the border of people trying to fight for dignity and to make change for economic justice. Uh, Francesca, Emmanuel, thank you for joining us. Thank you. All righty. Um, we are out of time. I'd like to thank um, all of our guests today and uh, our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, assistant producer, Romero Funes, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret uh, Prescott. And we want to welcome our listeners now in Houston, uh, Texas, that's now carrying uh, Sojourner Truth. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to PacificaRadioArchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all remember to please stay safe. Oh, I you don't forget to say I sing you. Oh, 